If you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, where we'll be beginning in the book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 1, as we enter into this part of our worship where we study from God's Word and we share in some of the things that God has revealed to us in the book that we just sang about in the Word of God. Thank you so much for being here. We have a number of visitors. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. Welcome. We're glad that you've joined us. And if there is something that we can do to help you, or something that you have a question about, we'd just love to talk to you about our work and what we're doing and what the Lord has done for us. So please stick around for a little bit after the service, and we'd love to get to know you a little better. But if there's some way we can help you, definitely please let us know about that. I want to begin by reading Genesis 1 and verse 26. Genesis 1 and verse 26. The text says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. When God made people, he made them after his likeness and image. But when God made people, it says there in verse 27, he made them male and female. That is to say, God made us as sexual beings, differentiated on the basis of sex. And the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality. Our sex and our gender are a part of our lives and the part of the way we experience the world. And the interplay between the sexes colors our entire existence. We really can't escape it. It is a part of our world. But while the Bible has a lot to say about sexuality, our world also has a lot to say. We are daily presented with ads and media and movies. And we have daily interactions with members of the opposite sex. And all of these color our perceptions of what reality is. They teach us what it is to be a man or to be a woman and how men and women should relate to one another. So it appears to me that there is a pressing need for us to have a Christian view of sexuality. What does God expect Christians to think about this idea of a world that is divided by sexes? And then the idea of how sexual activity would happen in the world. So I want to spend just a few minutes this morning talking about what we're going to call Christian sexuality. Now, I am sensitive to the fact that there are small ears in our audience this morning. And I want you to know I'm going to do my best. Sometimes I will speak in euphemisms. Sometimes I will be careful with my speech. But it's not because I'm ashamed to say anything that the Bible teaches about this topic, but it's just out of respect for the conversations that parents of young children may have to have later this afternoon if I am not careful. But having said that, that's part of my concern, too. Often our young people grow grow up without a lot of information or knowledge about a Christian worldview about sexuality. And so they grow up just with the idea that there are certain things you don't do, but without anything very constructive. And in the absence of anything constructive, very often that leads our young people, and I know this because I deal with our young people and those who were once young, that leaves them with a number of habits and patterns of thinking that are destructive because they've come right up to the line of sexual activity without actually crossing it. And that is an unhealthy practice. So it seems to me we need to do some constructing to talk about what the Bible actually says about this topic. So let's just begin here and say that God made us as sexual beings. Look again, Genesis 1 and verse 27. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Have you ever thought about how there are so many possibilities of what God could have done in the realm of gender? 
God could have made people any way He wanted to make them. He could have made us as asexual beings who reproduce and live happily without any other human contact. Or He could have made us without having different sexes, just all males or all females. Those variations are seen in nature from time to time. It's certainly not something that's outside the realm of possibility. Yet, the differences that we see between men and women are divinely originated. They are a part of our existence as people. They are the way God made us to be. And with that comes the expectation that men and women will reproduce sexually. Look at verse 28 of Genesis 1 and verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I'm not saying that that command, be fruitful and multiply, is a command for all people for all time. I am saying it's clear that God's expectation in making us this way is that it's going to be a part of the natural order of things and how men and women will reproduce and humankind will flourish on the earth. And even in the beginning, when God made men and women this way, even the first man and the first woman, it was with a certain implication about the way they would join together. Turn with me to chapter 2 of Genesis. In Genesis 2, as God creates the woman from the man... Because as he says in Genesis 2 and verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. So God makes the woman, and in verse 24, Therefore, it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, one flesh is a reference to the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. But also, he says, they will leave father and mother. And they are joined together in every way. So a physical relationship is a part of that joining and is part of God's intention. But even in that text, at the very beginning, at the very creation, you have the idea that a man and a woman will leave father and mother and join together. In other words, there is an implication of a commitment that is associated with sexual activity. They're going to be together. And as they become one flesh together, in every way they are joined. That is implied that there will be some permanence to that joining. So why is it important that we talk about that God made us sexual beings? It's important because it means that sex is intended to be a blessing. It is not evil. It is not wrong. It is a part of the natural world and part of the way God wants us to experience His world. And there is more to it even than that, because it's clear even from the very beginning in the Genesis account that God intends this to be more than what it is for all the other creatures he's made. There is more to it. There is an emotional dimension. There is a commitment and a permanence to it. Now, there are, in fact, some natural relationships with other animals and other species that do have some implication of commitment. But there is nothing in the natural world that even comes close to the importance of sexuality between humans. We are more than animals. Even from the beginning, God pictures us that way, tells us we are that way, and created us that way. So God has made us sexual beings, and that's good. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4. We talked about this passage actually in the Q&A this morning. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God in prayer. I understand in this context he's talking about food. But this principle that when God creates something, God steps back from it in Genesis and says it is good. 
And so when God creates us as sexual beings, it is because that is good. Now, that's not to say that every way we would express our sexuality is good. It is to say that the idea in and of itself has nothing wrong with it. It is, in fact, intended to be a blessing. Go with me to Proverbs chapter 5 for a moment. Proverbs 5. What I want us to see just in the beginning part here is that there is in this relationship that God has given us the potential for great blessing and good and the potential for great damage. Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 15. Proverbs 5 and verse 15 says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So he says, using the, the image of a water from a well or a cistern, that this should be a relationship shared between two people that brings great blessing. And he, he says, rejoice in it. Be intoxicated with her love. Be infatuated with your spouse. This is a gift from God. This is a good thing. But turn the page to Proverbs 6. In Proverbs 6 and verse 25, speaking of that immoral woman, Proverbs 6, 25, do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to its chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. So it can also, you see, the same relationship, the same impulse, be a source of great disaster and misery and pain when it is not controlled, when it is not directed properly. So God gives us a gift. God made us in a certain way. And the question is, what are we going to do with that? Now, many people believe that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is outdated and unenlightened and antiquated. But we have to admit that the things we've just said are true and pretty much universally recognized. I know not the part about God making us a certain way, but the idea that being a sexual being is a part of our existence, that this is the way we're made, and that because of that, our sexuality can lead to great joy or great misery. All people know this. It's just that the Bible takes that and says, well, maybe we should live our lives as if that were true. We should live as if this is a relationship that we need to be careful about and make good decisions about. That is a Christian beginning to the idea of sexuality. The second thing we'd say here is that God wants sexual activity to remain in marriage. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, we're going to read here verse 4. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So he says marriage is honorable, or let it be held in honor among all. That is, we should all have respect for a marriage relationship, because marriage is also a gift from God in which sexual activity is appropriate. In fact, it's an integral part of marriage. And he uses the term here in verse 4, the marriage bed, which is a reference, it's sort of an oblique reference, 
to that sexual relationship in marriage. That that is a place where that relationship is undefiled, it is holy, it is good. But then he says, if you read again at the end of the verse, at verse 4, God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So by definition, if marriage is going to be the honorable place for this relationship, then everything outside of marriage is going to be problematic. And that's why he says, he uses the term fornicators and adulterers. Fornicators are those who would engage in this with someone they're not married to outside of marriage. Adulterers are those who would engage in it with someone who they're not married to. And he says both of those are excluded because God wants sexual activity to remain in marriage and nowhere else. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to read the first five verses here. 1 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So let's take a time out there. So the Corinthians have written Paul, and it may be, my at least understanding of this, is that what they have written to ask him about this question is, is it just wrong to touch a woman? It would be better not to have anything to do with the sexual relationship. And Paul, in answering that, is going to say, that's not going to be a good course of action for everybody. That's not the way God really intended it to be, but that's also not what Paul is going to advise. So verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says, if you're going to say it's better not to touch a woman, he says, well, that's not really going to help you with temptation. And he says, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, that is to satisfy that desire in some way, he says marriage is appropriate, marriage is good, but again, God wants sexual activity to remain in marriage. And so marriage, he says, is a good option in those situations. Now, he then describes, and Paul goes into some detail, especially when you remember Paul's not married, he goes into some detail about how married people need to be interacting with each other sexually. And he says, you don't belong to yourself, but as a husband, your body belongs to your wife and her body belongs to you as a husband. And so you need to not deprive one another, verse 5, unless you've agreed to that, because that's what God expects to be happening in a marriage. So... This is God's will for a marriage relationship. This is what God intended when he made us the way he made us as sexual beings. And the question is, why would that be? Why would it be that God would say, no, only in this circumstance, in marriage, do I want this to happen? Is it because God is just really mean and he's going to make us a certain way, and then as soon as we act in the way we're made, he's going to punish us. I think we know better than that. I think you can probably tell by the way I asked the question that I don't believe that's so. But I think we know better some of the reasons why God would say this when we look at what happens when we don't respect that. So look back a page in 1 Corinthians 6 with me. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is going to address what he calls fornication, or sexual immorality, beginning in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. 
He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So some of the Corinthians are arguing that because we are free in Christ, we're free to engage in whatever sexual activity we want. And Paul is saying in this text, that may be true when you talk about food, but it's certainly not true when you talk about how you use your body in a sexual way. So in verse 13, he argues, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality before the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Paul argues from the original intention of the body. Remember what we talked about when we said God made us sexual beings? What did God make us to do? Paul says God did not make us to be fornicators. God did not make us to engage in what he calls sexual immorality. We weren't made for that. That's not the purpose of our maker. Look at verse 15 with me again. In verse 15 he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. When I am a Christian, I have become one with Christ. And that involves the whole of me. Not just my thoughts, not just my time, not just my soul, but also my money and my body and my heart. And especially here, it involves my body, how I use my body. That relationship between the Christian and the Lord is as intimate as the sexual act between two people. That is what Paul is arguing. We have become one with the Lord. And so, can I give all of myself into this intimate relationship with Jesus and then give all of myself into this intimate relationship with a prostitute? Someone that I have no right to. He says, never. In verse 18, he then says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. We have to be careful, lest we buy the lie that sexual activity is merely our bodies and biology. We're just doing what we were made to do, as if we are merely animals. Paul is arguing that it involves the whole of our being, and that being belongs to God. The reason I believe this passage is so integral to understanding Christian sexuality is because of the way our world works today. Society continues to sell us the lie that sexuality is just not a big deal. It's just hooking up. Or it's just a one-night stand. Or it's just casual sex. 
And I just want to say what Paul is saying more than anything, what screams off the page to me in 1 Corinthians 6, is that there is no such thing as casual sex. That does not exist. He says you are joining yourself to this person in the same way you have joined yourself to Christ, in the same way you are intended to join yourself with a person who you're going to be with for the rest of your life. That's not casual. But what Paul is expressing here is what we all, Christian or non-Christian, already know. Intimate relationships that we engage in with no commitment and no love are empty. And they leave us feeling violated and used and worthless and devastated. And you can stick a microphone in the face of any person in this country who will be honest about that, and they will say that is true. Paul says it's because we weren't made for that. And let's just be honest. How is promiscuity working out for our society? How is that going? As Dr. Phil would say, how's that working for you? Now, I know that there are some people who believe that promiscuous life is the best kind of life. But those people are almost always young. Promiscuity leaves people feeling empty and shallow and fixated on pleasure. We never learn how to work through a problem. We never learn a sense of commitment. No one knows us. No one cares about us. And what happens when we get older and those opportunities for those kind of relationships dry up? Who is there to walk with us in our old age? Who will be there to help us heal from the damage that we have caused ourselves with our foolish choices? But the conventional wisdom in our time is really not as much about promiscuity. It's more about what we might call a sexually active dating relationship, where we get a taste of some of the things that are going to come in marriage, but without the commitment. So if things don't work out, we can just say, see you later. And again here, we have the problem of doing something that is incredibly and deeply meaningful with someone who is not committed to us in any way. And in my view, this is just Jacob speaking, in my view, that's far worse. Because what I'm doing will leave me constantly insecure and terrified and just trying to make them happy because they could walk out at any moment. There's no promise or no expectation that they're going to be with me forever. There's no promise or expectation that they're going to be with me tomorrow. God's plan for this relationship is not some antiquated notion that doesn't make any sense. It is eminently reasonable because marriage is the best place for sexual activity because marriage is where we know that person is at least committed to wanting to be with us forever. And so we can share everything with them. The third thing I would say about Christian sexuality is that God wants us to control and direct sexual impulses. This is the challenging part of Christian sexuality. Most people would agree with the damage unchecked sexuality does, but the idea of controlling and disciplining ourselves in this area may just seem like too much. In fact, for many, it says, well, that's just not for me. Christianity won't work because Christianity will mean this part of my life I have to get under control and I just don't know if I want that or I even can do that. Turn the page to 1 Corinthians 9 with me. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. 
1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Sexuality falls under the umbrella of self-discipline that Jesus expects of all his disciples. Will we discipline our bodies and keep them under control the way Paul says, or will we allow our bodies to control us, to dominate us? Christians are intended to live in a way where we do not simply do whatever our bodies tell us to do and then feel bad about it later and apologize for what our bodies have done. Christians don't live in a way where we let our bodies get into places where we really deeply regret what we've done with our bodies, but we just couldn't help it. That is slavery to our bodies. And Paul says, I discipline my body and bring it under control. My body is my slave instead of me being the slave of my body. And let me say, that is a miserable kind of existence. And with each decision we make to give more and more in to our bodies, we lose a little bit of our choice and we lose a little bit of our identity. We forfeit ourselves. Paul says, as a Christian, I'm going to discipline myself and keep myself under control. Jesus speaks about this specifically in sexual things. Let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. When Jesus teaches about this, he is not just talking about the idea of self-control, but specifically the idea of controlling sexual impulses. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 27. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The expectation, he says in verse 27, of the Old Testament was that God's people not be adulterers. Yet Jesus says the problem has roots much deeper than just adultery. He says the problem has to do with the heart. It starts in the heart. He says in verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Stop looking at women this way. Stop thinking about women this way. And by the way, it is not simply men who have this problem. All of us have the obligation to discipline our hearts and our eyes as we engage with the opposite sex. That is what Jesus says. He wants us to control and direct those impulses. I believe it's understood that the kind of behavior is not excluded when we talk about our mates, because he calls it adultery after all. He is saying, we need to discipline ourselves because we do not have a right to just every human being we see. They are not our property. They do not belong to us. They are not committed to us. We cannot treat them as if we have a right to a sexual relationship with them. That is an issue that is not about the broader world. 
It is not about what people these days are wearing. That is an issue that is about my ability and willingness to control and direct my sexual impulses. Jesus says, you need to fix this. I think we know that, though. I think we know that there are some people that it's inappropriate to look at and think about that way. Maybe it's that's our family members. We say, oh, no, no. I'm not going to look at them that way. I'm not going to think about them that way. Maybe it's people of a certain age, young children, older people, and we say, oh, no, that's not appropriate. Jesus is saying expand that sense of, oh, no, that's not appropriate. Expand it to everybody that you're not married to. They are not yours. Stop looking at them and thinking about them in that way. There's more here. Jesus is teaching us when he tells us, stop looking to lust, that the way to control sexual impulses is to deal with them at the source, at the input, at what you're seeing and what you're thinking about what you're seeing. It is not enough to simply control behavior because when we only control our behavior, our thoughts, our hearts can still be wildly out of control. Jesus wants better for us. It's here that I need to mention pornography, which falls entirely under the category of what Jesus calls adultery in the heart. It seems to me that many people embrace pornography because it seems like a safer alternative. It seems as though nobody's hurt by pornography. It seems as though no real relationship is formed. But pornography makes this temptation constant. Pornography cheapens sex, where there is no sense of commitment, no sense of reality, really no even sense of interest from the other person. And there is none of the meaning God intends for that activity to have between two people. And most of those who are caught in the grips of pornography will tell you, this is not what I want, this is not what I want to do, this is not what I want from my relationships with the opposite sex. And yet by inflaming those desires, it becomes difficult to control. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4. I want you to hear, when I say the words, God wants us to do something, I'm not speaking out of turn. Paul says specifically that God's will extends to our sexual lives. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. God's will is our holiness, especially in matters of sexuality. And I want you to notice verse 4. In verse 4, he says that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. 
This is the North Star in Christian sexuality. This is what it means to be a Christian, that I control my body in holiness and honor. The things I do with my body, the things I think about, are always honorable and holy. They are God's will for me. Am I in control of my body? And we know that that's going to make us different from the world around us. He talks about it there in verse 5. Not like the Gentiles who live in this lust-inflamed way because they don't know God. He says, we are different. We have been sanctified. Knowing God should mean that we are newly holy. Now, for most people, including most men especially, the sexual arena is where our greatest spiritual battle resides. We fight the world, the things that we are bombarded with in the world. We fight ourselves. And we fight a feeling of hopelessness as these things get more and more of a grip on us. Sometimes we feel isolated, like no one understands. Sometimes we feel like we're out of control and we'll never be in control again. And I want to say the good news of the gospel is that you can overcome sexual sin and be redeemed and be a new person and that your sexuality doesn't have to define you anymore and the sexual mistakes you have made don't have to be who you are. That Jesus died to set us free from all sin, including sexual sin. In fact, I can prove that to you. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Paul writes, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice that these are, these are classes of sexual sin. And he says, that's who you used to be, but you've been cleansed. And those things are still bad, they're still wrong. But now you are a different person. You are not excluded. You are not hopeless. And with forgiveness and with the teaching of Jesus and with the help of your fellow disciples, you can control and direct your desires. This doesn't have to define you anymore. And I tell you, I speak of what I know because I have lived this. And I have been a person who has been out of control sexually. I know what it is to have evil thoughts. I know what it is to have a past that I don't want to talk about. I know what it is to feel like I could never escape it. I know what it is to feel defined by it and to feel colored by it and to feel a hypocrite because of it. But I also know what it is to be a different person. I know what it is to be cleansed. I know what it is to have a new lease on life. I know what it is to not be defined by who I used to be. I know what it is to read these passages without guilt. And that is a blessing I would wish on every person in this world. Because that is the gospel. That's not who I am anymore. I want to say to you, if you are battling problems of a sexual nature, this is the place you need to be. You are welcome here. This is a place to find healing 
This is a place to get to work on yourself and for the Lord. This is a place to get counsel and support and prayer. This is a place where you can find the gospel of Jesus and the forgiveness he offers. And we would love nothing more than to help you on that journey so that you can pursue what God calls us to and see what a blessing it is to live, to truly live in the freedom of Christ. Do you need help? Do you need to make something right? Do you need to have the forgiveness of Jesus? We're going to sing a song to encourage you. And if there's some way that we can help you to be right with God, to be washed in the blood of Jesus, if there's anything we can do for you, we invite you to come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.